Thank you. Thank you for... It's great to be able to celebrate our God together on this Thanksgiving. I don't know what you're thankful for, but I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment. In uh, We're just going to offer prayers of thanksgiving to God. And also intercession. If you have watched the news very recently, you will know that uh, conflict has erupted in the Gaza Strip, and uh, it is very concerning. The conflict in Ukraine continues in many other places of conflict. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for some things. No, it doesn't say that. Right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with grumbling, no, with thanksgiving. And so, you know, present your request to God, and, uh, and the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so I thought it was appropriate for us this morning. And, you know, we don't have to do all of the thanksgiving and then all the intercession. I just want to encourage you just briefly where you are, just to speak out. It can be, thank you, Lord, for. And Lord, please help. Please bring peace, whatever it is. It may be someone specific that you have in mind. Maybe it's your workplace or your neighborhood or your family. And you're getting together this weekend. And you're like, oh, Lord. Or maybe it's great. So, I will just invite you into the place of prayer, and then I will close at the end. So, a word of, of thanks or intercession, this is your opportunity. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning bringing, Lord, our thanksgiving and also our intercession at this time. Thank you, Lord, for your great faithfulness and the many personalized expressions and experiences, Lord, that we have of this. And Lord, there are also things, when they break our heart, Lord, your heart is broken even more. And we thank you that you are a God who cares so deeply, who is so deeply committed, Lord, to setting things right. And we pray, Lord, for signs of the inbreaking of your kingdom, whether that be, Lord, in a conversation this afternoon, whether it be, Lord, in, uh, in our workplace during the week, in our neighborhood, Lord, whether it be um, in an unexpected meeting or one that we have planned, Lord, that we would see the signs of your kingdom breaking in, Lord, giving renewed hope and strength and peace. Amen. Well, Rob asked you uh, a, couple, a bunch of questions today. I, I'm starting off with a question too today in uh, today's message. What are some of the biggest decisions that you have had to make or are having to make in your life? 
some of the biggest decisions. Some of you might feel like it's what classes to take, what career to pursue, what place to live, what person to marry or not marry. Maybe it's a big purchase. Who to believe, who to follow. It's the last one. My decision of who to believe in and who to follow, Jesus in this case, that has been the biggest decision in my life. It has influenced and impacted many other major and minor decisions and should, right? For how should I now live is a question followers of Jesus need to ask in the small and big decisions of life. In the New Testament letter of 1 Peter that we've been looking at, the Peter helps his readers to understand and embrace not only the glorious benefits of faith. Remember, you're richer than you think. And, uh, you know, uh, you're grander. You know, as the church, you're grander than you think. But he also helps point us to the challenging implications. And there's a basic rule of thumb, if you will, that he gives, and that is to be positively influential. Be positively influential in all our relationships and responsibilities by following the teaching and example of Jesus. That's today's message. You're done. We're finished. Awesome, eh? <laughs> I know you're thinking, just stop there. It's good. Okay. Well, we're going to look into this a little bit more. I encourage you to open your Bibles. First Peter, right near the end of your Bible. First Peter, chapter 2. And we're up to verse 11 and following. If you can't find it, yeah, you just follow along on the overhead. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, the opening two verses of this section are a call to, I call, live with distinction. Live with distinction. As foreigners and exiles in our world, we shouldn't expect to just blend in with the culture around us. Being different means we will need to, Peter says, abstain from sinful desires rather than giving in to them, especially because we know that they wage war against our very soul. You know, Satan loves nothing better than to try and enslave us, to lull us into thinking that we're expressing our true self when we do what feels good. But sinful desires are always personally and relationally corrosive and distort God's good intentions for us. If you want some of the list, Peter, at the beginning of chapter 2, he said, Rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. That was just an illustrative list of some of the sinful desires that wreak havoc in relationships. You know, abstinence is not an end in itself. It is always a means to a higher good. You ask an, an athlete or somebody, you know, doing their studies or, you know, a, and, uh, and you ask them, you know, well, why don't you come on out, you know, to watch the movie or, or let's go out and eat some junk food. And they will, if they are really committed, they will abstain. Not necessarily because they don't like some of the stuff, but because they have a higher goal in mind. In every area of life, abstinence, we understand when we have a higher goal, abstinence is necessary. It is necessary. And Peter is saying the same in the spiritual life. We are to live godly lives, not only for our own good, if you notice, but also for the glory of God and the good of others. He will say in verse 12, as commentator I. Howard Marshall says, Peter is concerned that the way in which Christians live should testify to their faith in God, show the character of God and witness to the gospel. The behavior of Christians should be an incentive for other people to believe. Now that's the goal. And Peter is saying that our lives should illustrate, should commend the way of Jesus. I was talking uh, with a good friend recently and uh, uh, has a family member who works at Union Gospel Mission. And, uh, and the donor list is amazing, he said, how many people, no connection to church, but in conversations, you know, it comes up, oh yeah, I really support Union Gospel Mission. It's like I thought, there's a positive example, an illustration of people see that, and it's like, that's something I want to, you know, affirm and support. And so we need to be both verbally declaring the good news of Jesus and visually displaying that. Both are essential, not one or the other. The good lives and good deeds Peter has in mind, I think will generally be the kind of conduct that no, even non-Christians recognize as good. You know, honesty, integrity, fidelity. After all, these are the kinds of things that make someone a, a good neighbor, a good colleague, a good employee or boss, right? To live with distinction is particularly important 
when there is a strong temptation among many non-Christians to run down Christians. This was certainly the case in the early centuries of the church. For example, the Roman, famous Roman historians, historian Tacitus called Christianity a deadly superstition. And he described Christians as being hated for their crimes. And you're like, what kind of crimes? Well, there were a lot of rumors that Christians engaged in incest and even cannibalism at their church meetings. It's like, what? Well, cannibalism, you know, they heard rumor they ate the body and blood of Jesus. It's like, wow, there's a really big rumor going on there. And incest, well, they called one another brother and sister, and they would greet one another with a kiss. Wow, okay. Well, this is what it is. You can... Uh, and so Peter is saying, now live such good lives that the false rumors and accusations, it's like, that can't be. They don't stick. Or at least they won't stick in the long term. In verse 12, Peter shares this hope that the non-Christians around will end up glorifying God. And I think either by A, for what they eventually recognize to be good deeds. You know, we misread you. Ah, we see, that was right. Or, I think it's also possible that they eventually do get what they deserve. And it could be either. Because that phrase, on the day he visits us. Episcope in the Bible, that's the, the Greek word for visits here. It is often used for divine visitation in judgment. It's not God coming over for dinner. It's God visiting, and now the judge has come, okay, in court is session, and a decision is going to be made, and everything is going to be brought to light. So I think that is, what is at work here? What is clear is that Peter has adopted here a very positive attitude, though, to the situation of Christians in a hostile environment. Rather than retreat and withdraw from society, he wants Christians to be positively engaged in it, positively influential. Well, from verses 13 to 17, we can see that this includes how we are relate to and engage with human authorities, those political authorities, that we are to respect them. It is worth noting that Peter sees Christian citizenship as part of Christian discipleship and witness. Not just a total withdrawal from this, an engagement. What Peter says here is actually in sync with what Paul, the Apostle Paul, says elsewhere. Most, most many are familiar with Romans chapter 13, the opening seven verses. Paul also has a few other places. But a common theme in, in all of the places this occurs in the New Testament is that Christians should submit to the political authorities whose God-ordained role is to preserve law and order. Okay? Christians are to be model citizens both by what they don't do, you know, a bunch of lawbreakers, no, and model citizens by what they do positively, paying taxes. Uh, Paul's words in Romans were actually quite, you know, there was a tax revolt taking place at the time. <laughs> when he says pay taxes, it's like, wow, this is really against the trend here, okay? Pay taxes, show respect to those in position. Wow, that would be kind of radical nowadays, isn't it? 
This uh, coming week on Saturday, we're having uh, Tri-City Prayer Leaders Prayer Breakfast. It's hosted by uh, the pastors in the, in the Tri-Cities, and we, each year we invite political uh, leaders as well as school board and police chief and, and others to come to a breakfast, and we just want to bless them and pray for them. And, and it is a wonderful opportunity each year to do that. And it is important. One of, the th- one of our rules of thumb is we, uh, in our pastor gatherings, we say, pastors are people too. We have the same issues, and politicians are people too. And I can tell you, it is more uncivilized in uh, political discourse and public discourse. It is concerning. We need to be those who are positively showing respect to those in positions of political power. In his book, Politics Under God, Professor John Redekop includes a chapter. These are good chapters. What does God require of governments? It's like, yes. And then he also has a chapter. What does God require of Christian citizens? Yes. Worthwhile reading. As a general rule, governments are to maintain law and order, and Christians are to affirm the legitimacy of the state and government by submitting to it. For the Lord's sake, Paul says in verse 13. That is, law and order is God's will. And he also says, do it to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It seems to me that Peter has a basic scenario in mind here of having a positive public witness so that Christians contribute to the well-being of the social order rather than oppose and undermine it. But it is also clear, I was thinking back, uh, you know, is there any exceptions? Acts chapter 4. Peter has his own example uh, there that a Christian not always to give the government unqualified support. I want to read a few verses. Acts chapter 4, 18 to 20. So Peter and John have been called before the Sanhedrin And uh, they are now given orders by the ruling authorities. They bring them in, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I think it helps us understand when Peter says, you know, we are not slaves of the state. Peter says, we are slaves of God. The state, I think he is saying, is not our ultimate authority. And given Peter's emphasis on doing good and his own example of civil disobedience, because they go out and preach in in Acts chapter 4, Paul appeals to justice in Acts 16 and 22 Together, these are times when Christians may seem, may be to, when there are times when Christians need to fulfill our political responsibility by acting against government when it deserves criticism for acting unjustly. Jesus himself accepted the unjust verdict and suffering inflicted on him, but he also, at that same time, testified to the truth, exposing the injustice and guilt of those who handed him over to Pilate. He said, they, you know, are guilty of a greater sin. And when Pilate claimed, 
I have power either to free you or to crucify you. Jesus made it clear to him, well, you would have no power over me if it were not given from above. So just keep in mind, there is a higher authority than you. And I think this is why former political science professor at Trinity Western University, Dr. John Radicup, suggests that Christians also ought to be our government's most perceptive and useful critics. Most perceptive and useful critics. The issue at hand may involve racism, prejudice and immigration regulations, the abuse of foreign aid, militarism, desecration of the environment. There are many examples. And we should affirm government authorities when we can so that we can criticize when we must. It's a good rule for the fam family relationships as well, school, anywhere that we are. Redekup says, as we seek to be responsible Christian critics, we should realize the governments will not likely be favorably impressed if the only issues about which we protest are those which are self-serving, which benefit us specifically. If we advance only our own causes and ignore the pressing needs of others, what are we doing more than self-centered groups do? I think he's got a really good point. Positively speaking, verse 17, we are under orders from God to show proper respect to everyone, no matter what their position, political position or otherwise. Examples include, Paul and Peter gives, but are not limited to, love to all the family of believers. Fear and say, honor to the emperor. It is worth noting he doesn't say, fear to the emperor, honor to God. Fear God, only one, but honor to the emperor. It is in sync with Jesus' words in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Why? Because this is how God acts. Well, Peter's call for followers of Jesus to submit themselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority in verses 18 and following is then applied to slaves. And these verses calling slaves to submit to their earthly masters, not only the good ones, but the harsh ones, that sounds awfully politically incorrect to modern ears, doesn't it? I think it did then too. I think he is likely addressing a situation quite different than one we may imagine. Often when we think of slavery, we think of what took place in the United States and in other parts of the world. Slavery in the ancient world was very common, but many people, when you couldn't pay off your debts, you couldn't declare bankruptcy. You sold yourself into indentured servitude. Okay, I'll work for you for five years to pay off my debts. And you would be a slave in that time, and then you would go free after that. Not the only situation, but that was a very common one. And we also know that Peter wrote at a time when Christians were being slandered and persecuted. And so if you're a household slave, you would be especially vulnerable, and you would need to know, what should I do? I don't seem to have any power and it's interesting that what does not strike us as odd, but would have in that culture, is that slaves are addressed at all in what is um, 
literally a household code. That is, it was common to have household rules in the ancient world. We have all different kinds of illustrations of this, but slaves are never spoken to. That's because slaves were never addressed since, as commentator Peter Davids points out, they were not full persons and thus did not have moral responsibility. But in the church, slaves were full and equal persons and thus quite appropriately addressed as such. The church never addressed the institution of slavery in society at that time because it was outside of its scope. I mean, they had no representation in government. They were nobodies in society for the most part. But the church did address the situation where they could in the church, where no social distinctions were to be allowed. All were brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul will address that, you know, when you come together and you people who are economically advantaged have a big meal first and then afterwards the poor people come in, don't you ever do that again. You are one family of God. There is no distinction, no slave or free. You are all one in Christ. This is the way we live in the church. And that is what they did. And it was shocking to the society at large. When somebody came into their gatherings. And Peter is saying to these slaves, rather than see yourselves as helpless victims, I want to invite you to see yourself ultimately as slaves of God and to reflect on your suffering in the light of Christ's suffering. And by redefining their unjust suffering as redemptive suffering in imitation of Christ, Peter offers an alternate perspective, a lens to see God-given meaning and purpose in what they're experiencing, a way of resisting ultimate evil and pleasing God as they await the day when he who judges justly will ultimately reward the righteous and judge the wicked. Peter knows this is a hard teaching to accept. That's why he spends you know, it's agonizingly so. That's why he states the basic principle in verse 18 and then spends all of these other verses unpacking it. And, and unpacking and rooting how this ethic is rooted in the foundation of all New Testament ethics. You know what the ultimate foundation of New Testament ethics is? The life and teaching of Jesus. That's it. No one has ever had to give up more than Jesus. No one has ever had to face more unjust suffering than Jesus. No one was ever rewarded by God more than Jesus. I'm reminded about this example of Jesus. I was thinking back to, I was talking with someone this week, uh, uh, a retired person who's having to let go of a lot of things as they're aging. And I said, oh, that is hard. And I was reminded of my grandmother Esau. My grandma Esau, I remember visiting her just a few years before she passed away. And she was in her early 90s, and she talked about loneliness. But what struck me most, which I will never forget, she said, I've been learning how lonely Jesus was. All of his friends and disciples abandoned him, and he was so alone going through the most difficult part of his life. 
And she was finding great comfort and encouragement in that. And I think she was right. She was right. And I think Peter is, is helping them in a difficult situation reflect deeply on, this, on Christ's example. He is with you in this. This is meaningful to God, even if it feels futile and meaningless in the world. I think Korean theologian Jae Wung Jung is right when he says that we ought to see and hear this text, he says, not as an oppressive household code, but as an empowering word to oppressed people. There is a way of responding to injustice that refuses to let it determine our response or to refuse to let it have the last word like it would be if you were a powerless victim. Jesus' suffering on the cross for our salvation, that is, taking our place, taking on himself the consequences of our sin, Peter underlines this in verse 14, that part of what Jesus did was unique. But the godlike way in which he poured the pain of unjust suffering as an example and invites and empowers us to follow, that is what Peter is highlighting. Indeed, it may well be, Peter is concluding, that just as Jesus' example turned us around from being like sheep going astray so that now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So too, hope and pray that your God-like example under suffering might contribute to the dramatic turnaround in others. The best, the best play, uh, oh, Abraham Lincoln said, he's quoted as saying, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. <laughs> uh, wow. I think that reflects what Jesus, if you don't like that person, maybe you need to get to know them better to help a turnaround. I want to close with a quote from uh, an ancient uh, early second century letter that was written. It's called a letter to Diognetus. We don't know who Diognetus was. He seems to have been a, a quite a leading figure in some way. And the person who wrote it, we just know that they're a Christian. And they are trying to commend the faith. But what is interesting is that they don't so much commend the faith by trying to show all of the truth of what the gospel is. They com this person c tries to commend the faith by saying, just look at Christians and how they live. And this is what the writer says. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play full role as citizens, but labor under all the disability of aliens, and it knows with no rights. Any country can be their homeland, for, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. That is, put them out to die, which was very common in the ancient world. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, 
but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the world, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all people, but all people persecute them. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function from which he or she is not permitted to excuse themselves. What if, and we were trying to commend the faith to someone, we didn't need to get into arguments about, you know, is there a God or not? We could just say, well, this is the Christians, these are the people I know, this is how they live. How do you explain that? And isn't that positively influential? I think Peter is brilliant and right. This is what we ought to be about. This is what the early church took to heart. And it is what changed the world. I want to invite you to pray as the worship team comes up. And uh, my prayer is that, oh Lord, help us to be like this in even small ways where we live and work and play to be positively influential. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I confess I fall so short of being positively influential in the ways that you were. Lord, I confess that the church collectively, Lord, has often failed. And yet, Lord, um, our hope is in you. And Lord, we pray that you would empower and equip us personally and collectively to be positively influential for you. I pray, Lord, in, in the coming month, we have opportunities, uh, especially, Lord, in uh, next month, we will be housing the homeless. Lord, I pray that whatever we do, we would do with something that is distinctively Christian and that you would empower and equip us to do that for your glory, for the good of the world. Amen. Thank you for leading us in, in worship on this Thanksgiving Sunday. I've got an assignment for you. Don't do what I did. Yesterday morning, I was out fishing. I had some fish on the line, and then it was getting close to when I was going to be ending, and I wanted just one more fish, a big one. And I got it on the line, and it started taking off down the river, and I said, fish on, and there were some people who just ignored that. And they got their lines all tangled up with mine, and within five minutes... My fish was gone. How do we handle loss that is positively influential? <laughs> Not the way I did. I won't say more, but I just uh, felt convicted after that. I thought, I've given too much significance to that. And I thought of someone I visited with this week over the phone, Velma, 
who's had to let go, letting go of a lot of things, looking at moving out. And we can just kind of grin and bear it. And that's a way that the world teaches us, too, to grin and bear it. But there is a better way that is distinct, but it will require Jesus' help for sure. So, don't do what I did. Keep your eye open for someone who is being positively influential. It could be a little thing, but you notice it. Thank God for that person and that. And seek to be positively influential in the opportunities God gives you. I didn't think losing that fish was an opportunity. But now in the light... I think it was an opportunity. I just didn't see it like that. If you'd like prayer, I invite you to, we've got some people available from the prayer team and they would love to pray with you. And if you would uh, really like to see some lunches, hospitality things come back, then quickly go and see Lisa Stephen and then you can head off to wherever you're going after that. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.